Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, we're getting into Luke chapter 18, and uh, uh, we want to go through the whole chapter today and kind of look at this in light of what's being said and done, uh, that Jesus is teaching us some very, very important things. Uh, First off, I I like this because this almost explains itself. You know, a lot of people say, oh, Pastor, that's a great sermon, and I like to be able to say, hey, uh, I didn't write it, I only read it, you know what I mean? You don't have to compliment me. Uh, compliment the guy who uh, put it together and wrote it. And, uh, and, and this stuff, as you just read the chapters, is virtually self-explanatory. And, and I also want to be able to say that the things that we're hearing about and, and reading today are absolutely critical uh, to the teachings of what Christ was trying to get at. I don't want it to sound wrong, but as we go through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, We cover the whole Bible, if you would. And and I don't want it to sound, well, some parts of the Bible are a little bit more critical than the other parts of the Bible, let's just say. And and if that be true, that there's things that are a little bit more important, this is the teachings of Jesus in his own words. This is ground zero. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus wants you to know and understand. And so many times it gets glazed over, it gets forgotten, and I'm amazed at how many people might not even ever heard these teachings. But this is what Jesus is driving at. This is what the whole Old Testament is leading up to the teachings of Christ. And and this is Jesus, just what he's saying here today. Uh, Hopefully you get a a simple idea of what's being said and done, and it conveys a a very simple idea about being a true disciple. Uh, The world is full of false disciples. Uh, The world is full of a lot of pretenders in Christ. And Jesus wants to develop a true believer. And we have talked about the the seed that is scattered, and some of it falls onto the the soil where the birds grab it up. Some of it uh, is on shallow soil. Some of it falls amongst the weeds. And some of it is is there to produce a true disciple that's got to bear forth fruit. God wants you to be one of those seeds that's planted to become a true disciple. And he's now giving us the foundation for which that happens. It's no mystery. It's not a a hidden guesswork. And and Jesus is laboring as hard as he can to be as simple as he can so that we can understand what God's expecting of us. And and a lot of people want to smoke and screens and mirrors and and shadows and and trickery. and, And they come up with a lot of creative ways when really they're missing the heart of God. And so Jesus is is telling us that, as we said last week, that we needed to be prepared for his return. Uh, We labored diligently to talk about what that was when Christ was coming back. And and now, almost as if you would, this becomes a follow-up for us to be ready for his return. The day of reckoning is going to happen to us sooner or later. And uh, we want to be prepared for that day. So getting into today's text in chapter 18, verse 1. He says, then he spoke a parable to them. And he's telling you exactly what this parable is trying to get us to do. That what? That men ought always to pray 
first off, and then secondly, not to lose heart. And I suppose that would mean that you could quit praying and that you can lose your heart towards God. And so Jesus is begging us. He says you've got to be ready and endure to the end, if you would, for his return. And he knows that a lot of people can get weak and tired and fatigued. They want to give up. They, they serve Christ for a season, and it's only for a season until they walk away from the Lord and go right back into the world. And so he gives this parable. And he's saying, there was in a certain village a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So he didn't really care about anything. He wasn't uh, favored towards anything. And he definitely didn't have a bent towards God. He's a judge. Judges are supposed to make decisions based upon justice, what's right and wrong is. But inside of this scenario, it says, verse 3, that uh, now there was a widow in that city. Her husband's dead, if you would, and uh, she's alone. And she came to him, the judge, saying, Get justice for me from my uh, adversary. So she's going through a, a, a legal struggle and she's now trying to bend the judge's ear on her own to get some sympathy for her cause and uh, uh, and it says verse 4 and he would not for a while but afterward he said within himself and this is his thinking though I do not fear God nor regard man Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So this judge is going to turn around and he's going to be persuaded by this lady who's persistent. She's nagging. She's going to continually be coming before the judge and you're going to see that he's going to crack because he just doesn't want to put up with her. And so Jesus puts it into a specific application. He says, verse 6, Then the Lord said, and he says, Hear what the unjust judge said. So he's telling you, he says, Listen to this unjust judge. And he's going to call him unjust, and the judge is wrong, because obviously you can see that a judge should be able to decide according to justice, what's right and what's wrong, and give me the facts of the case. And yet you're seeing that he's unjust, he's not a fair judge, because he's being swayed by this woman's nagging. I don't know about you, if I were to go to and stand in front of a judge, and I knew that whoever I was trying to win in a court of law to, and I knew that she was over here flirting or nagging or doing something to, to, to sway the case away from me, I would be bent. And here's this judge, and, and he's... He's bending himself. He's throwing justice. And Jesus says, see how wrong this guy is? He's, he's wrong for what he's doing by, by her persistence and nagging. Here's a guy who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people, and yet he is able to be swayed. And as he's being swayed, Jesus says, he says, uh, um, hear what the unjust said. Did you listen to how he was swayed? And then he turns around and he puts this into an application, verse 7. And shall God not avenge his own elect, you and I, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge 
them speedily, quickly. Nevertheless, Jesus throws it into a, a, wrap it up into last week's message. When the Son of Man comes, Jesus asks the question, will he really find faith on the earth? And that's amazing that Jesus has got to sit down there. He's asking, he says, hey, when I come back and I'm going to return here and, and on my second coming, I'm going to come back and you'd think I'd find the church. And the church should be all prayed up, ready for me to receive. And Jesus is asking the question, do you think I could find anybody who's going to be persistent? First off, don't miss the point of the parable. The parable is merely trying to explain. If you said, well, look at this unjust judge. This guy is... A slouch of a guy. He's, he's, he's bending according to a nagging woman. And, and, and Jesus' point would be, if you could get a, a, a mean, stubborn judge who doesn't care about man or God, and yet he would be willing to bend, don't you think that God in heaven, who is a just judge, would care for the petitions that we would make before him? Don't you believe that God listens to you? Unfortunately, many of us turn around and say, God doesn't really care about me. God doesn't know me. God doesn't have a plan for me. And I don't know what anything is about uh, my life. And why would I ever pray? It's a waste of time. And I know a lot of people. We've talked to them and they go, God doesn't hear my prayers. God's not listening to me. God doesn't care. And I go, wow, how, how can you have such an attitude? Certain prayers, I, I grant you, are not heard. But when, when our prayers are right before the Lord, we have to believe that God listens to prayers and God cares about our prayers. And, and the point is only saying that if an unjust judge would do this, don't you think God would also bend? God listens to you. God cares. God, God's willing to, to, to move. And, 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 and as man is weak and empty, God's not. He is, he is, he's not going to be sent down there and, 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 and lose his heart. And nor should we, when we come before God, think that God doesn't care about us or hear about us. And notice what he said. This is why he's preaching it, because he knows that man is capable of losing heart and failing to pray. I think it's critical when we get on our knees, we're in our prayer closet, we're alone before the Lord. You really got to understand that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, when we lift up his name and we say, Lord, I need help, that his ears go, he's just swooping everything together to say, man, I'm tacked, I'm, I'm right with you. You and I, were, I'm listening to you. But most of us, we don't pray because we go, eh, why? Oh, who cares? And I think for us to have a, a hope to endure, to go to the end, is to believe that God cares about us. God loves us. God, God, God wants to sit down and care about us. Notice there's a strange term in this. It says, and I believe it's one of the first times it's thrown at us in the Gospel of Luke, but it uses the term elect. And throughout the Bible, you see this term spattered throughout the text, Paul likes to use the term quite a bit, that God would care for the elect. And it has a connotation that uh, God has set aside his people. And we know that there is a difference between his people and the rest of the world. And yet some people have taken that concept of that there's an elect group of people that are better than everyone else that they were predestined from the foundations of the earth to become God's chosen people. 
and that because they were born into the right family, the right place, that they have a destiny for them, and uh, 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 it leads them to a, a sense of arrogance. Uh, some people would teach that only, you know, the elect are there, and that no matter how hard you try, if you're not one of the elect, you'll never get into heaven. And vice versa, if you are one of the elect, you can't do anything that's ever going to take it away from you, that you're going to go to heaven one way or the other. You're one of God's chosen people. So just live your life of debauchery and whatever. God's got to get you in there. I would strongly disagree with that teaching. I see that there is a free will, a choice that needs to be made. And as much as God can, can call us, many are called, but few are chosen. And that there has to come with inside of you and I, and exactly with inside of this parable, there is a guilt trip that is laid on someone's shoulders. I don't like to say that too much, but I, I think that explains the situation. Jesus is turning around and he's saying, okay, you know, here you are as a believer in God. You're one of the elect and chosen, but what are you doing about it? Can you see that there's a possibility that if you were to lose heart, if you were to cease to pray, when Christ come back, would you be counted and deemed useless and not there for him to take with him back for eternity into heaven? Uh, I could lose that? And I think the insinuation is, is that Jesus is saying, hey, look, you got something, don't lose it. Hey, you got something, there's a... A responsibility for you to continue to persevere to endure to the end and, and and we have to bear that responsibility that inside you and I as a believer there's there's no room for us to coast there's no room for us to sit back and just go oh, I got this all wrapped up I know exactly what I'm doing I know where I'm going I I I got all this hey 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 Jesus is looking at you and he's saying hey hey wake up there, you can fall asleep on the job, and there should be within inside of you a sense of persistence, a sense of going forward, a sense of saying, Lord, is there more in my life, and I need more in my life. And, 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 and I think that sometimes people can disqualify themselves from walking with God. Now, the old argument, you know, can you lose your salvation? And, and, and I don't think you can ever lose your salvation. I think that if God you know, says that you're saved and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, that, that man, you are locked into the kingdom of heaven. But I, I think you can leave it. I think you can walk away from it. I think Jesus is teaching that you can neglect it until it turns into, hey, would I find anything if I came back looking for you as a believer? It's a strong thing, and, and you're seeing a cross of terms. The elect... And as he's speaking to the elect, he's trying to say, hey, are you still got to be there in the end? Do you hear that coming across these pages? As he's looking, he goes, hey, what's going on with your life? I know you said you gave me your life. I know you think that you're a believer, but are you really? Ooh, I, that's a strange tone. And, and, and Jesus is turning around and he says, well, you have to believe and you have to be in touch and in, 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 in tune with God. So notice, he says, and it gets a little bit firmer entrenched here in verse 9. He says, also he spoke this parable to some who, and he's telling you exactly what he's trying to get at, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. 
And there are groups of people that think that they have themselves all wrapped up tight in a nice, pretty package, while everyone else is a loser. And so Jesus has given us a parable, an example, a parallel story. And he says, let's just say, if you would, verse 10, that two men go up to the temple to pray. Sounds good. You got two guys, man A and man B. They're walking up to the temple. He says, one's a Pharisee. So a Pharisee was a religious person that would look and act and say, I'm a man of God. I've washed my hands. I wear the right clothes. I look and present myself as a holy man. You'd look at this guy and say, wow, man, that's a holy man, a Pharisee. And the other, a tax collector. So it's a universal illustration. I don't think of any culture on the planet that uh, would glorify a tax collector, right? <laughs> they uh, despised by all. The two things you can't avoid in life, right? Death and taxes. I always, uh, I always want to be a good father and teach my kids the ways of life. So whenever my kid gets a bag of candy or something, you know, and I always go up, son, I've got to teach you a lesson. It says, you've got to learn to pay your taxes. So here, you've got to pay your daddy tax. And <laughs> I can always seem to weasel a piece of licorice in there. And, and they just know that, that that's the way it's supposed to be. That's a way of life. You've got to pay taxes. And so by any universal standard, this guy's just deemed as trash. So Jesus gives the parable, he says, verse 11, that the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus, and I love this, with himself. <laughs> so he's, he's patting himself on the back real hard. And talk about a prayer that doesn't ever get past the ceiling, right? And uh, he, he's praying thus with himself. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this t tax collector next to me. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So here he is, he's puffed up with pride. He has his own prayer of his view towards himself. And he's just sitting down there, almost breaking his arm as he's patting himself on the back. And yet the story goes on and the poor tax collector comes up, hated by all. He's standing afar off. He doesn't want to come running into the temple and say, look at how great and grand I am. But he's standing far off, and he would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven. But he beats his breasts, and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, and he's saying, Jesus has now got to interpret it for us, that this man, the tax collector, who wouldn't even, you know, brag about how good he is, but he just beats his breast and says, woe is me. He says that this man went down to his house justified. An, an important biblical term, if you would, justified, meaning that you can stand before God. It's just as if you didn't sin, that you'd have the right to stand there before God. That this guy went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. And then Jesus gives the principle, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So if you want to exalt yourself, puff yourself up with pride. You're going to have your bubble burst. 
And whoever humbles himself actually takes a good hard look at himself and knows where he stands before God. He's the one that God can use and will be exalted. And so Jesus is teaching us a spiritual principle which is very key to everything of understanding all that Christianity is is that sooner or later you have to be able to take a good, hard look at yourself and make an honest assessment. And the guy who can sit there and says, Lord, I'm just a worthless sinner. I don't understand all of life. I don't understand the Trinity and philosophy and theology. And I, I, I just know, Lord, that you are righteous and I am not. And Jesus says that guy is more dialed in then the other guy who thinks he knows everything, who has his Ph.D. in philosophy and can judge the rest of the world for their sins, and his bubble needs to be busted because his prayers never get past the ceiling. And if we want God to hear our prayer, which we talked about from the last parable that was given, and if we want God to have ears to hear, then one of the keys is, is that God's going to be listening to those that are coming from a place of reality. You want to sit down there and pray to yourself and continue to puff yourself up with pride. You're right. God does not hear your prayers. They don't go anywhere, and, and, and you're missing the boat. But to have a prayer when you cry out to God, and you're saying, God, help me. I, I don't understand anything. I'm not even worthy to look at you. I don't, I don't know. Just, Lord, everyone hates me, and I need help. Man, the creator of the universe sucks down on that, grabs that person and says, man, I'm here for you. I love you. And we have to believe to have a, a prayer life. It's coming to a place of, 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 of not being false, not living this fake facade of a life that impresses everybody. But sometimes in order to be a real true disciple and to be a real born-again Christian, you have to come to that place in your life where the bubble bursts. Reality hits home, and you're not as great as you think you are. you got to come to that point in your life. You have to. I went to, uh, went to a Tecumseh last night. and got back at midnight, and uh, I've heard all the rantings and the ravings of what a great you know, outdoor performance this is down in Chillicothe, so it gets out at 11 o'clock, and uh, it was a long three-hour play, and I wasn't all that enthralled with it in a certain sense. And, and I went with, with, with a group of Boy Scouts, and I brought my son, who's 11, and his friend, I think, is 12. And, uh, or both my boys, my boy's 12 now. And uh, it changes so often, you know? <laughs> but uh, he's, uh, he's at that age of being a Boy Scout, and... Uh, and so the Boy Scouts were doing this recruiting, you know, for all your kids and says, hey, bring your sons and they can get in real cheap and cost me a fortune to get in. And, uh, and so we go down there and it, it just kind of rekindled all my youth because I was involved in the Scouts. And it seems like when I grew up in Massachusetts that, you know, we always in Massachusetts worship the, Boy Scouts, or the uh, Indians, you know. These, an Indian is just, you know, the closest thing to nature and God. And if you could ever you know, listen and learn the way the Indians did it. When I grew up, well, that's the right way. That's, you know, the natural way. That's, they were dialed into God and we, we were the, the evil white man. And, and, the, and, and, and the Indians, they helped us to, to grow corn and, and they helped us when we got off the ship. And, and I always grew up with an extremely uh, uh, positive uh, 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 mystique of what the Indians were. 
And um, as you get older, you start to realize that, you know, the modern day Indian wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. I, I left Massachusetts, I joined the Marine Corps, I go through four years of the Marines, then I go to Bible college, and I was all full of zeal to go out and to preach and to love and to care for all. And uh, when I graduated Bible school, uh, the first thing I did was we moved to Arizona. And in Arizona, it's really weird. Um, for me, the Massachusetts boy, uh, and everything in Massachusetts is they always strive not to have things segregated. We always hated prejudices type stuff. And I don't know what it was about Arizona. Arizona was an extremely segregated, prejudicial town. You, you always had the, the cowboys versus, you know, the Indians versus the Mexicans and the whites and the blacks were extremely segregated. And, and they had gangs and all the gangs hated each other type stuff. And it was just one drive-by shooting after another for who was shooting what, when, and where. <clears throat> and I could never figure it out because I went there and it seemed almost universally, though, that everybody hated the Indian. And I went there, I was like, well, you know, you'd hear a disparaging word against the American Indian. You're like, well, what? And they all lived on this reservation when we got there, and it was the, the Maricopa and the Pima Indians were there. And, and when I got out of Bible school, I wanted to be, you know, the young evangelist. So I said, well, what can I do to get in circulation with the population of the people? And so I took this job, you know, working at the Circle K. So Circle K was... It was, a, it was an interesting way to get to know society. Uh, uh, Circle K is like a 7-Eleven, so it's just a corner little convenience store. And so I was there, and they turn around, and they throw me on the graveyard shift. So I'm working Circle K, fresh out of Bible school, uh, on the graveyard shift, and the graveyard shift's 11 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning. And, man, the freak show would come out, everybody who has to go get the beer because I'm the one that has to lock down the beer case at one o'clock you can't sell liquor after one and so you know you want to talk about almost being threatened to be shot at when people come in at 105 and they say my watch says it's and I for the life of me could never figure out why anyone would ever want to buy beer at Circle K in the first place I mean just in a practical sense we used to have this store called Smitty's which was a lot like a Kroger and and Smitty's would sell beer for eight dollars a case for Budweiser I mean when you buy it at Circle K literally it was twenty four dollars a case and you'd say why would you pay you know three times the price to have it at this place when you could go down to Smitty's and you know stock up a little bit earlier instead of buying and and I and people would come in and, you know, you're always threatening to get shot and robbed. And, and, and I'm always trying to reach out. And these Indians would start coming in. And, and they would never say anything to you. And they, they were very quiet. And, and they knew that everybody hated them. And, and I, I, I tried to reach out and to talk to them. And I could give you a couple other long stories. But I started to realize that a lot of these Indians were just very large people. And I started to hear stories about what was going on in the reservation. And obviously there may be some difference between what's on a reservation and the other Indians. And trust me, I know that there's a lot of people here that are part Indian. I'm not, I'm only trying to be an observer of society. And people were telling me, I knew people that were missionaries on the reservation. They'd come back with these horror stories and they'd say, Dave, there's such, you know, sexual 
you know, depravity. There's, there's drugs, there's this, there's incest, there's all these things that are going on on these reservations. And it's just, you know, you can't find a bigger den of Satan. It's Sodom and Gomorrah back there. And I'm like, wow. And so here it is. And I think what hit me is I'm, I'm working at Circle K and in comes this guy that's 400 and something plus pounds. Okay, now wait, you got, I'm six foot three, a little bit hair short of that. And whenever I look up to somebody, I get intimidated because I'm six three and if I'm looking up to you, you're big, you know? <laughs> and when you're at Circle K, you had a little counter that was set up near the cash register here and stuff. And that, it was probably about the exact same height. The cash register's up this much. So if I'm up, you know, six inches off the ground, and it's by design, so you're always looking down at the customer and, you know, help stop robbery. And here I am looking up. I'm looking still up at this guy as I'm on the platform. And I'm going, this guy's big. Big boy. I mean, I'm underestimating the guy at 400 pounds. And, and he's just big in a lot of senses. I'm looking up at him, and the guy comes in dressed in a dress as a woman. I think that's what he was attempting to look like. And I don't care, there was just no way that you were gonna cover this thing up with a dress and have me believe in. I'm sitting there watching this guy as he's trying to buy beer and I'm just like, and he's giving me his money with hairy knuckles and pink fingernails. And I'm looking at him like, you know, and my, you can see my whole world just crashing down as I'm going, the Indians, they're, 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 they're not what I thought. They're, they're, they're strange, and we used to worship these things. And, and I'm like, what is this freak in front of me? And, and, and to know that the bubble is being burst, and, and, and my point only is, is, is that with inside you and I, we always have a mystique. We have a, an idea, of a fantasy of the way, the way we are in front of God. And I think God looks at us sometimes and he says, Dave, you know, you're that freak of an, you think that you're something great. And I see all your sins. I see your heart and I see you for what you are. Who do you think you're fooling wearing that dress? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it ain't going over too well. And so many times God says, you dress yourself up in religious garb. And we have this idea that we're fooling everybody. And God's looking at us and he goes, you ain't fooling nobody. And, and, and as you have this, this idea, your, your bubble has to be burst sometimes in order to have a good, solid, hard look at yourself so that you can turn around and say, wow, where do I really stand before God? And so many people have an overinflated, huge view of themselves. I, I love the verse, and I, I cling to it so many times, that... that it says in the Psalms that it says that he's mindful that we are but dust. I love that. God looks at us and he goes, man, I made you out of the dirt. You know, I don't have you such huge expectations out of you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I took the dirt together. I breathed in you. There's man. And somehow or another, we think that God just needs to be so impressed with our dirt. Whoa, look at the dirt, God. Look at my flesh. I'm really good. I'm really spiritual. Aren't you impressed, God? Look what I am. And God looks at us. He goes, Man, you can't see through how weak you are, how, how, how despised you are. You think that you're something. And so many of us become that Pharisee that says, Oh, Lord, I pray. Look what I've done, God. Look at me. Look how good I am. And God's looking at you and says, Man, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to impress me. I don't care what you think you've done. I'm not impressed. 
And yet we, we vault ourselves into a place of self-righteousness where we can look down at others and say, I have all the answers. I'm better than everyone else. My dirt's better than your dirt. And, 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 and the Lord looks at us and he says, if you think that you're so puffed up with pride and you're sitting down there praying to God, oh God, I really got it together. Oh God, these other people don't. Prayer doesn't get answered. But when you come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm a clod of dirt here. I'm weak. I need help. Man, the creator of the universe comes down and he loves and he cares and he shares with us. I, I love this verse. I think this verse typifies so much of the heart of the gospel. I love to read this verse just at a funeral for somebody that's just confused and frustrated. They don't understand what it is. And, and yet, the, the heart of this is to say, when you think that you're right, you're wrong. When you think that you're wrong, you're right. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And so many of us, we go, oh, I'm right, I'm better, I'm smart, I'm a good man, I read the King James, I go through this, I study the Bible, I fast and I pray, and I just understand the Greek and the Hebrew, and I'm so smart. Come on. When we as believers should turn around and say, Lord, I'm just a sinner saved by your grace, and I need your love, and I need your mercy. That's what it's all about. Not sitting down there thinking you've got to impress somebody by putting on a, 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 an outward garb and appearance. It doesn't fool anybody. And so it leads to the next point, which follows in line verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him, little snotty-nosed little kids, that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, get those little snotty-nosed kids out of here. They irritate us. They always upset the nice message. They rebuked them. They said, get those kids out of here. Verse 16, but Jesus called them to him. And he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So if you'd like to stand before God justified, if you'd like to enter the kingdom of heaven, there has to be a sense of innocence. There has to be a sense of saying, Lord, this is just who we are. We're coming and we want. And you can't have these pretensions. You can't have these pushing and shoving and demanding to get your way in there. And so many people in the body of Christ today, they push and they shove and they condemn and they put everyone else down and they say, we're right. And God is just putting the brakes on this and says, man, heart beats of the gospel is to say you got to care about people and to have God's heart. And if you don't, if you don't care about people and you want to push people aside and say, we don't care about people like that, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat. God is begging, he's screaming, he's pushing. He's giving us a simple example. So notice this then unfolds into verse 18. And it says, Now a certain ruler, a man with power and authority, to make decisions for other people. And he comes up and he asks him, Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so this guy, he's asking, he says, oh, Jesus, I'm listening to what you're saying. And it's like it, he doesn't get a word of what Jesus just said. He seems to think somehow that he has to do something to inherit life. And that somehow or another, it's just going to be, you know, if he works right, he can receive a gift. That's not what a gift is. A gift is something that's given. It's something that you receive. 
and, 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 and it, it's based upon the giver, the generosity of God to, to give it to those that he desires. You, you, you have to sit down and say, Lord, what? and so he's asking, he says, well, what is it going to take? And it's very important you understand what's being said here. So Jesus says, okay, fine, if you want to, you know, have eternal life. He says, so Jesus said to him, well, let's back up a little bit. Why do you call me good? He says, no one is good but one. And that's God. So it's interesting. He says, well, first off, if you're going to call me good, there's, there's an idea here that he's, say, that he's saying, idea here that, that he's saying, hey, look, there's one good, that's God. And Jesus is almost saying, well, I am good and I am God. And he's, in a certain sense, saying that he's God. Because he's got to answer the question. He doesn't refute it with him. But it comes down to a deeper meaning to say that if God's good, hopefully that means that you're not. And somehow or another, you have to come to that conclusion of having the bubble burst to be able to say, God, I need you. You are something that I'm not. And that's in, brought about by a, a simple example. He says, okay, let's get through that, he says. But he says, you know the commandments, right? Jesus says, you know it's supposed to be done. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witnesses, honor your father and your mother. So the guy says, okay, okay, you know, I've heard all that. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So what does this guy say? I've done all that. I'm good. I've completed those things. I would never do anything wrong. And Jesus is looking at him and says, man, you're missing the whole boat. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, try this on for size. He says, you still lack one thing. You're missing something. How? Try this. You think you can do it all? Why don't you sell all that you have and distribute to the poor? Take all your possessions and give them away. And so Jesus is targeting this guy. And he says, you will have treasure in heaven. And then you come follow me. But when he heard this, the guys listen to this. He goes, he became very sorrowful. Oh, ooh, ow, he's saying. For he was very rich. And Jesus is trying to do something here. He's trying to hit home to the guy that the guy is not living the life that he thinks that he is because he's still greedy. You have to understand the purpose of what the Ten Commandments were. God was trying to, as he gave us the Ten Commandments, thou shalt do this, 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 and this, and you better not do this, 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 and this with your life. Those are there so that when we read those and we think that we're something, we would look at that and go, I can't do that. Uh, I'm a failure. God gave us the Ten Commandments, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, so that it would bring about the knowledge of sin. We should look at the Ten Commandments and say, man, I'm a failure. I, I've, Lord, I... I I, I've broken those Ten Commandments. I can't honor my mother and father. I, I'm lusting after other women. I hate my brother. Uh, I'm full of so much animosity and anxiety. Lord, I'm just a wreck. But somehow or another, there is an ability within inside of a human being to be deceived. And most people can look at that and say, well, that's good, Jesus. I've done all those things. And Jesus is like, well, if you're still deceived, why don't you try this? Go take everything you have and sell it. And you'd almost have the idea that if the guy only had $10 to his name, he could almost say, well, it's 10 bucks, it's all I got, I'll give it away. But the guy's probably worth $10 million, and now all of a sudden at $10 million, he's going, 
Whew, that's a lot of money to give away. You just want me to give up that? I, 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 if it was 10 bucks, I could, but not 10 million. I'm just not throwing that money away. And you could see that he was wrapped up in his wealth, and that was who he was. And because he had so much of it, the disguise, the dress that he was wearing, the mask that he had on was so good, he says, I can't just get rid of it. And Jesus goes, well, see, now we're getting a little closer to home here. Now we're starting to see that you're missing the boat. And, and you are deceived into thinking that you're something when you're not. And that money has destroyed you. You almost want to say, well, let me pray for your brother that you don't make so much money so you can give to what needs to be done so that you can be free from it. And it's not a matter of pro poverty or versus wealth. It's just a matter of deception. And so it is, it, it, watch how this unfolds, verse 24, that when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, so the guy's going, man, that's just a ton of cash, I can't do it. He's, he says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And then he says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I believe that Jesus is saying that very literally, that as you take a big, fat camel and you're scuffing them through a little skinny needle, that's about your chances of getting into heaven when you are wearing a mask that you think that you're something when you're not. And somehow or another, you have to believe and understand that God's saying your chances are slim to none on getting through there. And if you want to enter into the narrow gate and not be on the path that is broad, you have to be willing to give all to serve the Lord. Now, I've heard the other teaching, and it, it makes some sense of, you know, the eye of the needle was a term of the small gate that was off to the side, so that uh, if you wanted to come in at night and the city gates were closed, you could take all your bags off of your camel, and then your camel could crawl on its knees through this called the eye of the needle. And, uh, and Jesus is saying that you have to take all your baggage off in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. You want to believe that, that's great. The teaching and the application is still one and the same. You've got to get rid of the baggage. You've got to get rid of the mask. You've got to get rid of, you got to get rid of all the things that are holding you back. And the things that are holding you back, whether it be the facade that you build out of your wealth, whether it be the facade of your life that you think that you're something when you're not, or whether it's you're just some 400-pound guy wearing a dress in the middle of the night coming in trying to buy beer. It's the same application. You're not fooling no one. And, and God wants to sit down there and says, you be honest with me and you deal with me. But when you come with your preconceived ideas, puffing yourself up with pride and saying how great you are, God's never going to listen to you. It takes humility. Whoever will be humble will be exalted, and everyone that's exalted will be humble. That's the principle that needs to be coming across to understand that this is foundational, A number one, to the kingdom of God. To understand everything is to be broken, is to have your bubble burst and to say, Lord, I took a good hard look at myself in the mirror, and I'm not very good. And if I'm not very good, who am I to throw a rock at someone else? And if I'm not very good... What, who am I think I'm fooling when I'm just playing a big game about how great I am? It doesn't impress anyone. The one I want to impress is God, and he looks right at my heart. And if I don't care about people because I understand that they're in the same situation that I am, then there's no hope for me. And so these guys are listening to this, and they're going, well, Jesus, according to your teaching, nobody's going to make it in. And Jesus goes, that's right. 
So it's verse 26, and he goes, well, then those who heard it says, well, then who can be saved, Jesus? Well, gee, you're so picky. You, you just systematically eliminated everybody. You got any money? You, got, you don't keep the commandments? There's no hope for any of us. And Jesus goes, bingo. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And the heart of the gospel is that you come to that place of being broken before the Lord, and then you say, Lord, help me. And God says, now I can help you. I love you. I care about you. Uh, your prayers mean everything to me. And hey, an unjust judge would be moved by your heart. I, God, the creator of the universe, care about you, and I love you. And whatever, you, you can't do it with your facade and your dresses and dress me up mask. You're never going to impress God. But when you sit down and are honest, you're going to see that God is going to be moved. And it is possible with God if you trust in God for your salvation. And I like this. And then Peter said, hmm, scratching his head. Hey, wait a second. If you're telling us to grovel, to be poor, to trust in you, let me look at my life. I've left my parents, my fishing business. I'm stuck out here in the middle of the desert with uh, uh, Jesus. Hey, if it comes down to being a Jesus freak, I'm it. If it comes out to being broken, I'm it. So he's like, hey, well, you know what, Jesus? Um, we have left all and followed you. And I love this. So Jesus, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Man, that's a huge sacrifice. And he says, who shall not receive many times more. And listen to this, in this present time, and in the age to come, eternal life. And this is beautiful because I really think Jesus is saying, you know what? Christianity is not all groveling and poor me and, you know, I'm just going to, you know, torture myself for Jesus' sake. There is the connotation that when you come to a place of actually being honest with God, that as an honest person, you can start to have a sense of reward for the things that you're doing. You can start to say, Lord, as a, as a humble servant and you filling me with your spirit are now enabling me to give and to love and to share, I'm going to be benefited by that. There's a blessing that's set aside for me. Christianity is just not all pain, 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 pain. But it is coming to a point of being brutally honest with yourself, allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you and to touch you, and then allowing wonderful things to happen through your life. Jesus is looking at you. He says, man, if you, if you can connect with me in a real sense, we can do wonderful things together. It's, it, it's going to take you to a, a higher place. You're going to be exalted. That's part of the whole formula. It's just not break your knees and suffer for God. It's being allowed to be elevated to a place where God can use you, and it's wonderful. You're going to sit down and say, hey, you know, as you die, you stand before the Lord. You're supposed to pass through this fire. It talks about in Corinthians. And there's things that you can build your foundation on that are wood, hay, and stubble. Those things are consumed in the fire. They're quickly gone. And if you say, Lord, look what I've done in my flesh for you. God says, they're gone. They're not going to make it up to the kingdom of heaven. You don't have any inheritance. But if, if you can say, Lord, this is what you've done through me. This is your spirit moving through my life. This is you empowering me. And when you touched me, Lord, we decided that we were going to have a genuine act of love for somebody who needed my compassion. Then you're building with gold, silver, and precious stones. 
And he's, he's given it, he says, hey, you're going to receive a blessing. And I like this, in the present time, in, this, in the here and the now, and in the age to come eternal life. It's just not all pie in the sky. There's a present time where if we walk in honesty before God, we will have a sense of contentment, joy, peace, and a sense of satisfaction that outweighs anything that a new car, a new house, a new wife is ever going to bring us. And that's that longing of the heart that's satisfied. That's what God wants to touch in our heart. And the things that eliminate that is being fake and phony. And so Jesus says, you know, this is the way we live our lives as believers, verse 31. He says, then he took the 12 aside. And he goes, come here, guys, I've got to tell you something. He said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And you know what's going to happen up there? All the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Oh, really? For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. Oh. He'll be mocked. Oh. And insulted. Oh. And spit upon. Hmm. They're going to scourge him and kill him. Oh. Hey, it's okay, because on the third day, on the third day, he will rise again. There's going to be a resurrection. And this is the sad part. It says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't know the things which were spoken. And I find that so, so painful, because these guys are hearing that Jesus is telling exactly what's going to happen. And what happens? It goes right over their head. And unfortunately, in the body of Christ today, it is painful to see how the church has separated itself from the very teachings of Jesus. The things we are saying and doing here today, the, the, the very core of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry. The, it seems like every Christian is blind to this. They're filled with anger, animosity, divisions, fights, and factions. They're always saying, we're better, it's better over here than it is over there. And hey, we don't like them. And somehow or another, we justify it with this righteous indignation on how we can hate somebody. And, and, and somehow or another, we've got to say, well, you know what, instead of schisming ourselves out, instead of dividing ourselves into so many cliques and so many divisions of what we are, we have to realize that the core of that is bitterness and hardness of our hearts because we're puffed up with our own pride. And it is sad to see that so many in the name of Christ are filled with hatred with just cause. Well, I fast twice a day. I tithe. I'm so much better than this guy over here. Ugh! Give me a break. Where's the heart of Christ in any of us that can turn around and says, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. Lord, I need your forgiveness. Lord, I just want to be honest. And Lord, who am I to sit down and start throwing rocks at somebody else? We've got to break that, that hole on us. And it seems so sad that here Jesus is outlining it point blank in front of the disciples. And it goes right over their head. And you go, how could they be that stupid? How can anybody be that stupid to hear what Jesus just said and they miss that? Hello, I think if I was listening to Jesus sitting by the little seaside and he takes us over there and he says they're going to beat me, whip me, scourge me, scourge me, and then they're going to, you know, hey, but I'm going to raise from the, rise from the dead. You go, wow. And yet so few people get it. So few people in the body of Christ actually want to live a crucified life where they would say, Lord, I need to lay down my life, my pride, 
my dignity, be beaten a little bit, misunderstood, and they could even kill me, but it's all right because my life's in God's hands. Can't go that far. Can't go that far, Pastor. And Jesus is telling you, you know what? Hey, I'm number one, head honcho, big guy here in town. I'm the king of the kingdom, if you would, and this is the way I operate. What makes you think it's going to be any different for you? And every single one of us says, well, no, that's not going to happen to me. So he wraps it up with a perfect little illustration. It says, verse 35, that uh, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, so this blind guy's going, hey, there's a big commotion, all these people are talking in the street. And he's going to turn around and he asks the guy next to him, he says, uh, what does this mean? What's happening over here? So they tell the blind guy. So they told him that, hey, the Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. This Jesus is coming through town. And the blind guy can't see it, but he's turning around and he says, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And then those who went before warned him that he should shut up. Shut up. Be quiet. But he cried out all the more saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Bamo, receive your sight. Healing takes place. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, and I love this, and followed him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So here's a powerful story of a healing. Here's some people that are blind. And what are they doing? They're doing the absolute critical thing. They're crying out to God and they're saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And you know what? If we, if we could sit down there and just cry out to the Lord, somehow or another, our blindness may be healed as well. Notice the story takes place on the way to Jericho. And as they're coming near to Jericho, for us, those that understand some of the Old Testament story of Jericho, Jericho was the first big, bad, ugly place they came into when they crossed the Jordan River, 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 as they entered the Promised Land. And as they're going into the Promised Land, we know Moses had them out in the wilderness for 40 years, and Joshua comes up, and he's coming to this big place that they're supposed to take as their Promised Land, and there's already people living in there, seven nations that were bigger, stronger, and better than they were. Here are two million brick makers going against a fortified army of combat. And they're like, Lord, how do a bunch of brick makers, we got 400 years of brick making, uh, we can make good bricks, but we're not very good at being a military force of armor uh, and war. And God says, what you do is you march around the place seven days. At the end of the seventh day, you march around it seven days on the seventh day. And at the end of that, you turn around, you blow the trumpet, and when you stand there, blow the trumpet, guess what? The walls come a tumbling down. 
And as the walls come tumbling down, then you can march upon these guys. They're going to get taken off guard in a huge military victory. So here, they didn't, they didn't have a military victory because they had any skill in war. They weren't great at anything. They just depended upon God. They actually went to the absurd and said, you want me to march around the city seven? That's like going to bring the walls down. Hello, God, where are you at? Why don't you just give, her bigger, why don't you just give us bigger weapons? And God says, do it my way and you'll get great results. And sometimes there's a spiritual blindness inside of us that sometimes the walls in our life need to come tumbling down because sometimes we are so filled up with pride in ourselves that we don't understand where and who we are before God. And as we think that we're great Christians, the truth of the matter is, is that we're missing the mark by a mile. And I wonder if some of us would take a good, hard look at ourselves and say, Lord, where am I before you? I hate this person, that person, and this person. I'm mad about this, I'm mad about that. And God, am I so much better than you? And I know that this is where I stand. And God says, you're not even close to the kingdom of heaven. It takes us to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a dirtball. I'm disgusted with myself. And I need you, Lord, to come into my life and, and open my eyes, Lord. Heal me. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes down upon you to fill you with his love, his strength, in his mercy so that we could start to have his heart towards other people. It's all God wants you to do. That's it. It's, it, it's not rocket science to be a Christian. It's just the opposite. It's the, if you can sit down there and say, Lord, I just need help. And it is sad how we can justify ourselves. We can be that Pharisee so filled up, puffed up with pride. And it's so sad that sooner or later, as we carry that burden in that mask and we got ourselves all dressed up to think that we're something, you know what happens? We, listen to this, we, we quit being a Christian after a period of time because we know that it's all a game. We lose heart. We quit praying. And we says, Lord, I'm just playing a game here and for good cause we stop people come to church for a season oh jesus 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 and they walk away from the lord because they go man i'm tired of going to church it seems like we're just i don't know why i'm doing it just putting on a big facade throwing money in the plate why am i throwing all that money what what purpose is all this going to do this is a joke well if you want to sustain yourself so you don't lose heart and you continue to pray and you continue to walk with God, you have to continuously be in a place of being able to say, Lord, I need you. I need you. My life is yours. Everything I have is yours. And, and, and Lord, if you want it, take it. And I don't care, but I'm going to put my life in your hands. And I can only tell you that as you trust your life over to God, God can sit down there and work in your life like never before. I'm begging you. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. I, I, I wonder how many of us miss that mark. And it's a challenge to me. It's, it's amazing. I talked to a friend that's a car salesman. And uh, he's a good car salesman. And he tell me, he says, you know, Dave, you talk to a lot of people. <clears throat> and, uh, and he says, uh, there's three people when they walk through the door, you can just tell that they've got to have a terrible credit rating. And... Uh, First one's police. Anytime you see a police officer walk in the door, you want to buy, sell them a car, you pull up the credit app, 99% of the time, they're in a horrendous credit situation. Second group of people that would ever walk in is going to be another car salesman. If a car salesman is trying to buy a car from you, you can pull a credit app on any car salesman, and their credit is terrible. 
And the third group of people that would ever walk in and try and buy a car is a pastor. Well, isn't that sad? That so many pastors can sit down there when it comes, you know, they can talk the talk, they can walk the walk, but when it comes time to actually looking at the numbers and seeing where someone's credit is, most pastors' credit is horrendous. Now, I shocked him with my good credit report. But uh, it's sad to think that so many people in the pulpit can be so deceived in themselves that they can be the biggest perpetrators of this crime, of a self-deception. That scares me. That scares me to say, Lord, I, I just want to make sure I'm right. I want to make sure that I'm doing things correct. And Lord, I can think of, oh, I'm mad at the Joneses, mad at the Smiths, mad at this, mad at that. I'm mad at, oh, what's wrong with these people? And I can puff myself up with pride to condemn anybody. It, 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 it's, it, it goes deep into my heart. And all this comes down to a place for us to sit down and to say, Lord, I need to hear this. I, I, you know, how do I see myself? And I want to look at myself and I'm a dirt ball. And Lord, just by the grace of God, there go I into any sin. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you use me to do anything. And Lord, I will continue to serve you and to love you. And I want your spirit to fill me. Don't let me be deceived. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Now, I'd like to think that there's somebody here that might want to get saved today. And... There's an open invitation for someone <clears throat> to let off their mask, let go of the things that they're saying and doing, and to give your life over to Jesus Christ in a sincere sense. But assuming that most of us are believers here, sometimes we have to assume that, Lord, if there's something in my way that's blinding me, show me. Lord, let me see me for who I am. Open my eyes, Lord. I wish to see Jesus. And I think if we could just have that prayer, as Jesus is coming and he's asking you, he says, what do you want? I pray that you'd have the same intuitive answer to say, we want our sight. And so we pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask you, as we come before you, Father, to open our eyes. It's scary, Father, that we would actually get a glimpse of ourselves. It can be depressing. But I pray, Father, that out of sincerity of our heart, that we would look and see, Father, that you love us, Father, and you care about us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of your good name and your good nature. There is an inheritance for us to receive, Father, and there's nothing we can do to inherit it, to work it, to earn it, to make it happen, other than by your good graces. Father, I pray for your spirit to be here today, that if somebody's wrestling with themselves, they would come forward and receive prayer. If somebody wants to know for sure that they can go to heaven, that they would come and confess you as Lord. And Father, for the rest of us that may seem weary and tired on the way, that you would energize us, fill us, Father, in a place of walking with you in honesty, and that we'd have the joy of our salvation afresh and new here today. Father, we thank you. We love you and we praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.